Welcome to ASA Central Line, the official podcast series of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, edited by Dr. Adam Stryker. Slides of individual presentations and a video recording are available at asahq.org slash COVID-19 info. Welcome to another episode of Central Line. I'm Adam Stryker. Today, we're sharing more information from ASA's most recent COVID-19 town hall, recorded on March 26th, bringing you up-to-date information from our experts in the field. Here's what they said. I'd like to invite Dr. Loeb and Dr. Feldman to give their presentation on converting anesthesia gas machines into ICU ventilators, the do's and don'ts of that. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. Uh, I do want to just emphasize uh, what a privilege I feel it is to be a part of the anesthesiology community during this time. The level of engagement, the quality of the questions, the thoughtfulness on practice has been remarkable. And um, so it's a privilege to be with everyone here. And I, I hope that the information that we provide empowers everyone, and I'm sure it will, to make the best decisions they possibly can at the bedside. What we're going to focus on for the next few minutes is this concept of using anesthesia machines as ICU ventilators. So why is this important? Well, we know that patients are going to uh, die from respiratory failure because of an insufficient supply of ICU ventilators. And we also know that anesthesia machines are available. And for the most part, they have ventilators that are entirely capable of keeping people alive and treating respiratory failure. And we also know that anesthesia professionals are um, have these skills and the ability to put these machines into service and ensure the safe and effective function. Our purpose tonight is not to solve the entire problem of all the ventilator shortages, but to emphasize that no patient should die from respiratory failure if there's an anesthesia machine available that could save them. And we are the ones that know where those machines are and we know how to use them. So um, what are some of the facilitating factors that make this possible? So one is canceled elective procedures, and that makes machines, disposables, and personnel available to put the machines and the ventilators into the service of the patients that need them. There have also been some important facilitating steps that have happened over the last week or so. One of the first uh, was the FDA statement that anesthesia machines can be are now approved for the, this off-label use. So anesthesia machines are not typically labeled or permitted for use as long-term ventilators, but under, uh, I think in part because of Dr. Alexis Carmer, who's one of ours at the FDA, this statement was issued early on and made it possible for the manufacturers then to begin to support that. Shortly after the FDA statement, the manufacturers issued specific guidance on the off-label use of their devices. And prior to the FDA statement, they would not have been able to do that. So you can now find uh, guidance from each of the manufacturers specifically discussing how you can use their devices for this off-label purpose. For any of you who may have tried to read some manuals on machines, you might expect that some of this guidance is not entirely user-friendly although there's great information there, and I certainly recommend that you take a look at it. For that reason, um, we have put together reference information that was published today on the ASA website to help with the process of purposing anesthesia machines as ICU ventilators. So there are two documents that are available now on the ASA website. Uh, the first one is our longer reference. It's about six or seven pages on uh, all the things you need to think about in purposing your anesthesia machines 
as ICU ventilators. We've also created a one-page, two-sided document that's intended to be a bedside quick reference that has setup and monitoring instructions to use the anesthesia machine in that fashion. And I'll come back to a couple of details about that in a few minutes. So there are some barriers to doing this successfully, and a lot of the efforts over the last week or so have been to figuring out how to remove those barriers. One of the most important ones is getting the machines to the patients or the patients to the machines. Uh, so there are a lot of machines often in many areas, but they're not all in hospitals. In fact, probably less, uh, a little bit uh, less than half of the available machines are not in hospitals. And so an effort to find those machines and make sure that they're deployed where they're needed uh, is going to be an important part of this. Ensuring access to adequate disposables, um, breathing circuits, and things that are uh, for the machines uh, may be more readily available because some of that can be shared with ICU ventilators. Um, CO2 absorbents are unique to the machines. Um, my hope is that with the decline in elective surgery, we'll have access, re fairly ready access to those supplies. And to date, have not been able to determine that there's a shortage. But again, we may have distribution problems as one place heats up and there's a lot of need for materials and absorbents. Protecting the machines from contamination, it's very important to keep that focus as we deploy these machines because as one patient hopefully survives and that machine is no longer needed for that patient, it can be deployed very quickly to the next patient. And so there's specific guidance on the APSF website on what you can do to protect the machine and have it ready for the next patient. Uh, the good news is that if you use viral filters effectively, uh, the machine is protected and you don't have to go through extensive decontamination procedures in order to deploy it again. Other barriers, patient monitoring and documentation. In many cases, we're accustomed to having our machines networked to an electronic medical record where data is automatically uh, recorded and we're standing by the machine to be able to monitor the patients. That's going to become a little bit more difficult. We try to address that um, in the guidance as best we can. Um, and then knowledge about how to effectively use the devices in the setting of respiratory failure, patients with advanced respiratory disease. Most of these machines have very capable ventilators, but there are some differences. We've provided some guidance in the modes and the specifications. In, in the reference material, you will find contact information for the companies. And I've spoken with all the major manufacturers, and they are ready um, to try to support us as best they can. Um, and then, of course, not every anesthesia provider is trained in ICU or hasn't been in an ICU for a while. So comfort with the long-term management of these patients is something that's also being addressed. So some overriding recommendations. Um, we recommend that uh, when these machines are deployed, that an anesthesia professional be immediately available 24-7 to manage and monitor the anesthesia ventilator and assist with the respiratory care. At this time, we're discouraging the use of inhaled anesthetics um, because of the physiologic consequences of those drugs in, in a critically ill patient, um, particularly if there are personnel immediately at the bedside to use them. And so we recommend that the vaporizers be either removed or emptied when the machine is put into service. Um, I would encourage everyone to read the guidance that was posted today. There's lots of in good information, links to resources that you may need. Download the quick reference guide, modify it as you need it for your local situation, and prepare in advance. Find out where the machines are, where you will use them, and how you will staff it. Um, so at this point, I'm going to um, pass this on to Dr. Loeb, who has some even more specific guidance for you on, on how to use the machines effectively.
Thank you, Jeff. Um, so I'm going to get into some of the nuts and bolts of what's been published. Um, in terms of key considerations, one of the first things to recognize that you need to be very careful to with the scavenging system. Uh, anesthesia machines have scavenging systems for waste gases, to collect waste gases. That's not necessary if no anesthetics are being used and you're in an ICU. We are, as Jeff said, not recommending uh, delivering anesthetics that would require waste gas uh, scavenging and depending how you interpret things, the constant presence of an anesthesia uh, provider. Um, we all know that, uh, especially at lower flows, the inspired oxygen uh, that the patient gets can be lower than the set oxygen concentration. That is not the way ICU ventilators work, and so uh, is one of the reasons why uh, rest therapists should not just be given these machines and, and sort of taught to turn the dials. Uh, we need to be there. There are a lot of long-term use issues that uh, we tried to sort of foresee what would happen, uh, you know, what the, what the issues would be, but I don't have any uh, real experience providing uh, anesthesia for longer than 12 hours or so with uh, one of these anesthesia machines. I, I know it happens during that time period, we're talking much longer. But in the ICU patient, you do want to provide humidification. Um, and as you know, all ICU ventilators have active humidifiers for that purpose. Anesthesia machines are not. Um, as you know, from doing long cases, there uh, will be the accumulation of condensed water within the uh, breathing circuit, within the tubing. And so you, uh, it's important to just recognize that and be able to keep, keep up with it and know how to manage it. Uh, in some places, uh, Italy, for example, there have been shortages of compressed oxygen, and I'll talk a little bit later how anesthesia machines uh, may use significantly more oxygen than an ICU ventilator. If that's a problem, things that could be done uh, to, to help with that. We have filters on our anesthesia machines more than uh, typically we were using before uh, COVID came along, uh, recommendations by the APSF in that regard. But in the long term, you're going to need to have uh, procedures for changing filters, recognizing uh, when filters become obstructed and, and fixing those problems. Anesthesia machines are made to be tested every day. Uh, you all know you come in in the morning and start your machine and do uh, uh, calibrate things and it does a self-test and you check things. Um, you're going to need to build to your procedures how you go with the need for recalibration self-tests. It's going to be important, just like when we use these in the uh, OR, to do accurate uh, pre-use tests and self-tests and to check the compliance of the breathing circuit, um, especially in intensive care patients. Uh, that uh, additional clients uh, can really affect the, the delivery of tidal volume that they get um, and can affect the tidal volume measurements that are made by the machine. So, very important to do that and then not change the configuration of the breathing circuit after that's done. It's also very important to obtain baseline flow and pressure tracings and flow volume loops when they're available, again, because they can point to uh, problems with water in the breathing circuit, obstructions of uh, filters, etc. And very important uh, to have a manual resuscitator available with a filter on it um, because there are going to 
be times when we know that you're going to need to ventilate the patient by hand for a little while, for instance, while doing a safe test, changing filters, uh, things like that. So very important, just like in the OR. I'm going to just uh, talk briefly about scavenger systems. Um, scavenger systems, uh, there are two basic types, open scavenger systems. Uh, you see the, the canister, some holes in the top, uh, gas flows in from the APL valve and the ventilator relief valve, and then gets sucked out into an active disposal system. But in the ICU, you may not uh, be able to hook up that active component. In the OR, we have what's called the a waste anesthesia gas disposal outlet, WAGD. In the ICUs, they don't have that. Uh, they have suction outlets, uh, and the tubing may not be compatible. And um, so there may be no way to hook up suction. A closed scavenger system, it has a reservoir bag, its own reservoir bag, uh, that sits usually down on the side of the machine. And if it does not have active suction going to it, it depends on valves to open to let the gas coming out of the breathing circuit into the room. It's very important that if you have one of these scavenger systems, you remove the reservoir bag, just take it off and leave it off. Because if you leave it on, especially in new newer model anesthesia machines, there may be significant back pressure causing levels of PEEP of 13 centimeters or higher. So that's a very important consideration and something that could be a problem right off when you start using it if you haven't dealt with it. Uh, I did speak about humidification. It's needed in ICU patients and for the long term to prevent mucus plugging, to prevent the effects on respiratory uh, epithelium. Um, but there are problems with humidification. Uh, it causes condensation within the tubing, which then uh, can cause uh, obstructions to flow. Um, and it causes, and there can be con uh, condensation in hidden parts of the uh, breathing circuit and inside of the ventilator that in can impair uh, how the how the machine works. The condensation can affect uh, sensors, especially some flow sensors, so that they totally fail or give erroneous readings. Uh, it can affect uh, valves, especially the one-way valves, unidirectional valves, and cause them to stick or stick open. Uh, it can have effects on the absorbent, making it not work as well as it gets if it gets very wet, and uh, even the potential for electrical failure of components and failure of the machine. So it is very important not to let the machine uh, get too wet. Um, our uh, uh, recommendations are to discourage active humidification because that really does put a lot of humidity into the breathing circuit, encourage the use of a heat and moisture exchange unit and filter at the airway, uh, which will provide a reasonable level of humidification. Uh, at uh, lower fresh gas flows, it'll provide the level of humidification provided by active humidifiers. And if condensation becomes a problem to increase fresh gas flow till you find a happy medium for the upsides and downsides that I'll talk to you in a moment about with fresh gas flow. It's also very important if you have spirometry to monitor the spirometry for signs of obstruction of that filter at the airway. There's no pressure transducer downstream of that filter. So you really have to look at what happens with exhalation, some subtle signs to see that it's becoming obstructed. Uh, 
uh, signs on spirometry and pressure tracings and things of condensed water in the tubing causing bubbling and oscillations and signs that there's a leak around the endotracheal tube, which you definitely want to uh, prevent in these uh, COVID positive uh, patients because it uh, means that they're aerosolizing as that leak occurs around the endotracheal tube. So um, oxygen consumption of ICU ventilators uh, nominally is the minute ventilation times the amount, the inspired oxygen concentration. So if you have uh, 80% FiO2, then uh, it's 80% of the minute ventilation is the amount of oxygen that that ventilator is using. With the bellows anesthesia machine, most of them are driven, the drive gas is oxygen. And so just to make the ventilator go up and down, the bellows go up and down, they use approximately the entire minute ventilation of oxygen. And then additionally, the amount of oxygen dialed on, on the flow meters, on your gas flow, which would be your fresh gas, gas flow times the amount of uh, FiO2, FiO2 concentration. So nominally, that, that can take you up to uh, you know, 12 liters per minute or more of oxygen being used compared to an ICU ventilator that might be down around five liters per minute or, uh, at, at less than 100% FiO2. So significantly more oxygen consumption. If that's a problem, worries. But with a lot of ventilators going on in the hospital, uh, this just a compound a problem of uh, not enough oxygen supply. We have talked with the makers of the anesthesia machines uh, that have bellows ventilators in the U.S., and uh, most of them can change the plumbing inside of the machine to use compressed air as a drive gas. It usually takes less than an hour by a trained uh, technician, and it's something that you should consider doing before you put a bellows ventilator into service if you have time or to have a, a plan for doing that uh, if oxygen uh, levels become low. Once you've done that, the bellows anesthesia machine you, it gets pretty stingy in its oxygen use. Uh, it uses the F, uh, fresh gas flow times the oxygen concentration. And if you go to low fresh gas flows, it be as low as even in somebody receiving uh, fair amounts of supplemental oxygen uh, under two liters a minute of oxygen being used. Uh, piston and turbine. Uh, powered anesthesia machines uh, in the U.S. just made by Draeger at this point um, consume uh, electricity, electrical power to to power ventilation. They do not consume any additional oxygen to uh, ventilate the patient above the fresh gas flow times the inspired oxygen concentration. And for that reason, work better in a situation where you need to conserve uh, oxygen. It leads you to consider what sort of uh, fresh gas flows you're going to use once you get down to this situation where where you're uh, thinking about it. L using a low fresh gas flow uh, conserves compressed gases, may or may not be an issue. It humidifies the breathing circuit extremely well, in fact, maybe a little bit too well, but it means that the patient's gases that they're breathing will be well humidified, especially with that uh, HME filter at the airway. It does consume CO2 abundance, uh, which will need to be changed depending on your flows uh, once uh, to more times per day, and it will increase the amount of condensate uh, that builds up. And so 
you know, we're sort of used to running flows at uh, one to two liters per minute. In this situation, we're not uh, conserving anesthesia gases. We can probably liberalize that uh, very easily and turn the flows up to a degree. Going uh, higher with the fresh gas flows provides some humidification, but it it may not be enough. The HME filter at the airway becomes important. There's less absorbent uh, consumption uh, and less condensate. And that's probably where you're going to want to be in the moderate fresh gas flow range. Turning on really high fresh gas flows above the patient's minute ventilation uh, is probably not a good idea. It's wasteful of gases. Uh, it will lead to inadequate within the breathing circuit, which is a problem for the long-term uh, ventilation of these patients. It is important if you do use high flows and you're not really using your absorbent to still leave it in place. Don't take the absorbent out. Don't uh, take the, you know, put in an empty canister. It's going to change uh, how the machine works. Just leave it all in place and use higher there's no condensate problem unless you, uh, with uh, fresh gas flows, unless you add an active humidifier. And uh, it's important to know that when you tr start turning the fresh gas flows up above 10 liters per minute in some anesthesia machines, it starts interfering with uh, especially the expiratory portion of uh, ventilation because uh, gases can't uh, get out as well. So I'm going to turn it back over to uh, Jeff. Thanks, Butch. Um, I just have a couple of other comments and we'll end this part of the presentation. Just one thing to emphasize with regard to fresh gas flows, the manufacturer's guidance, depending on which one you read, particularly Drager, for example, recommends fairly high fresh gas flows, well above minute ventilation. Um, I believe their intention is to try to eliminate all humidity in the circuit and not have to worry about changing CO2 absorbance. We're not recommending that. We believe that anesthesia professionals know how to use the machines and that the advantages of running lower flows to maintain humidity and reduce the, um, reduce the oxygen consumption um, is of value. Uh, you'll need to make a decision, an individual decision in, in your location. Obviously, if you run out of CO2 absorbance, you're going to still need a ventilator. You're going to need to run higher flows in order to do that safely. And those flows are going to need to exceed minute ventilation. The last point that we wanted to make is what we would recommend for monitoring the function of the machine at intervals to make sure that it's continuing to function safely and effectively. And the motivation behind these recommendations are a couple, a couple fold. One is the machines are not intended to be used for um, certainly rarely many, many hours, but certainly not many, many days. And so there are things to think about if you're going to use them in that fashion. They should work well as long as they're monitored appropriately. Um, the monitoring schedule is on the back of the quick reference guide, which we've published. And there's recommendations um, for things to do at different intervals. Um, I won't go through all the details. It's described clearly in the document. Um, but you'll see, for example, at hourly intervals, we recommend looking for humidity and secretions and filters in the water trap, um, because that's one of the things that over time will become problematic for sure. There's also a recommendation every four hours to increase the fresh gas flow to minimum ventilation or above for 15 minutes. The intention of that is to dry the machine. We don't have um, clear data to, for the duration that we've recommended, um, but we're not using anesthetic agents, and so you're not wasting a lot of anesthetic agents, and 
we think that should get rid of most of the humidity, but you may have to modify that uh, based on your own observations. And the last thing, just a couple of words about the self-test. Um, so the machines are designed typically to have a, a test done every 24 hours. And in many cases, that's a power off to power on self-test. You know, have you, I don't know if you've ever had to reboot your computer or turn it off and turn it on, but there are computers underlying these machines. And so ideally you will cycle power at um, a 24 hour interval and you'll need to have obviously a way of ventilating the patients in between. So hopefully these points have been helpful. Uh, the documents that we provided go into these issues in much better detail or much more detail. And, and we hope that they will be helpful for you. Thank you, Dr. Feldman and Dr. Lowe for two outstanding presentations. Before we move on to our next speaker, we have a, a couple questions. And the first one's directed to Dr. Loeb. Who are the stakeholders at my facility that I should engage with the maintenance of anesthesia machines and their use in the intensive care unit? Okay, so uh, well, it sounds like you're asking uh, whether anesthesia professionals are gonna be needed uh, to provide uh, coverage of these machines. Uh, we believe the answer is yes, that they should. there should be somebody immediately available, uh, really at best, uh, rounding on these machines once per hour if there's a lot of them in use, um, and that if inhaled anesthetics are used, you really ought to consider having somebody uh, present uh, during the entire time. So um, uh, depending on uh, which side of the coin you look at, that could be good for anesthesia professionals or a burden on anesthesia professionals, but we do believe that uh, uh, respiratory therapists are, are not trained in the use of these machines. They are different. The breathing circuit, rebreathing circuit is different. Um, alarms are different. Uh, a lot, uh, so uh, there should be somebody who is experienced in using the machine to be of assistance. Thank you, Dr. Loeb. The next question is to Dr. Feldman. And the recommendation is not to use an anesthesia machine or ventilator for two patients. What, what is specific behind that non-recommendation? So uh, I think that the primary consideration, there are a couple of primary considerations. So one is uh, that patients will be ventilated differentially based upon their underlying lung mechanics. And so patient, the patient that has the more compliant lungs will get much more of the breath than the patient with the less compliant lungs. Um, you may be able to find ventilation strategies to try to mitigate that to some extent, but this is going to be a changing physiologic scenario that's going to evolve over time. And the other major complication is the inability to monitor the individual patients effectively. So the ventilator gives you information for what's happening downstream. It's typically thinking there's one patient, now there's two. So the monitored information on the ventilator is going to be very unreliable. And it's going to be few facilities that will have the equipment to place individual respiratory monitors on each patient. Um, when I envision this scenario, um, try to envision the logistics of this scenario with a ventilator and tubes going to more than one patient, and now one patient's desaturating. Now I've disconnected that patient. The ventilator is continuing to deliver gas to both sets of tubing while I'm trying to rescue that desaturating patient. And um, on balance, I think it's a logistical challenge, and it's essentially unsafe because our, of our inability to monitor the differential effects on the ventilator on each patient. I hope it never has to happen. That, that is why we did this work, and people are doing a lot of work for alternative ventilators that can be used. I think it, it really there, there are going to be better, thing, better solutions, um, even, even a, a 
not very sophisticated ventilator, one for each patient is a better solution. Thank you, Dr. Loeb and Dr. Feldman. Our next presentation is by Dr. George Williams, who's the chair of the Committee on Critical Care Management. Dr. Williams will be discussing consideration for converting ORs to ICUs in collaboration with critical care teams. Dr. Williams. Thank you very much, and thank you, President Peterson and this distinguished panel for the opportunity to come and share with you today. Um, and I'm here on behalf of the Committee on Critical Care Medicine, as has already been stated. I don't have any financial disclosures um, at all, so we'll discard that. And we'll immediately get right to the topic that we're addressing, which is fundamentally the functional um, execution of disaster care. And in order to facilitate disaster care, it's very important for everyone in the team that's suddenly finding themselves to be um, intensivists when the day before they were general anesthesiologists or anesthesia care team members is to be extremely flexible. In order for a system like this to work, um, it has to involve a lot of moving parts and a lot of adaptive uh, behaviors in terms of locations of practice, in terms of the types of patients we may have, meaning that while there is a COVID outbreak, um, there could, or COVID pandemic, there could be a request for the anesthesia care team to suddenly care for um, a COPD exacerbation or someone who had a trauma. So it's important to remember that flexibility is very, uh, very, very key to the management of this particular type of service. Anytime someone's in the ICU, it's a team sport. Um, we do have an attending physician. We have a nice rounding team, but it's important to remember that in the ICU, much like the OR, everyone's input is extremely important. The respiratory therapist's perspective, the nurse's perspective, even, even the person that may have examined that patient at morning's perspective, all that is very important and should be incorporated into an anesthesia, or in this case, a critical care plan. And so this really leads us to make sure that we appreciate everyone's limits and expertise. So um, for example, our bedside nurse is fantastic at knowing whether or not a certain type of tooth feed formula is being tolerated. Bedside nurse knows if the patient's sedation regimen is actually effective. It's very important to not allow our singular assessment when we come to the bedside to uh, supplant or surpass those of people that have been working with the patient extensively. Furthermore, an ICU team tends to be big. So you have social workers, you have respiratory therapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, pharmacists, an entire gambit of team members. And that multidisciplinary aspect of critical care is what has made critical care increasingly safe as the years have gone by. In addition, it's important to remember that you can't over-communicate. In fact, over-communication is best. So if there's a concern or there's an issue that another service is helping you with, it's important to communicate a lot so that everyone's on the same page. That one hour is different than the other hour in the ICU, just like one minute is different than another minute in the operating room in anesthesia. So it's very important to keep that over-communication perspective and goal in mind. Now, in terms of PPE and exposure, I won't go into great depth on this particular topic, but there are a couple of key points that we need to make sure that we emphasize. Memorizing how to don and dock PPE is not an effective or optimal way to make sure that you're protecting yourself and by extension, protecting your team members, your patients, your family. So donning and doffing PPE should include another partner or team member that's ensuring that, okay, you put on your gloves now and you make sure that you sanitize before touching your mask, make sure your strap is going on right. They're basically with you, helping you to don and doff your PPE appropriately. 
Um, this is a very important difference compared to when we may, for example, scrub in for a surgical procedure where everyone is aware already of what is required or requested of them in order to facilitate their procedure technique. Furthermore, we want to make sure we mobilize um, layout and leverage, leverage technology. And what this really means is that, for example, if it's better for a bed to move in a different position so that you can see them better from a central station, do it. If it means taking IV pumps and putting them in the hallway with low bore or, cal or small caliper extensions on the IV so that you can adjust pumps efficiently without having to don and dock PPE to go in the room to adjust a propofol infusion or fentanyl infusion, for example, that's a very effective way to leverage technology. And many groups have been doing things like that. We recognize that aerosolization procedures, such as intubation, is one procedure that we can help facilitate increased droplet spread. So we want to avoid that. But furthermore, minimizing bronchoscopy is a very key thing. And most COVID patients really don't have a great deal of mucus plugging. If it's indicated, sure. But realistically, bronchoscopy is a fantastic way to make sure we mobilize droplets. And that should be avoided unless absolutely indicated for the patient's care. And then additionally, a very important rule, many people that present on emergency preparedness say this three times, don't become a victim, don't become a victim, don't become a victim. So it may be very tempting to say, this patient is suddenly hypotensive, I don't have time to don or doff my PPE, I'm gonna run in the room and save that patient. That can end up making you a victim, which thereby doesn't help that patient. It doesn't help other patients that you are that precious resource to help facilitate ongoing care for. So it's very important to keep that in mind. And I want to thank my colleague, the medical co-director of our transplant ICU, Dr. Alexander Rascala, for allowing me to take an image of him uh, in his PPE in a case the other day. Now, the pathophysiology of COVID is very, very unique. It's highly transmissible. Um, and this is it's more transmissible than most of the recent epidemics that we've seen with SARS or with H1N1 or with MERS. And really one of the things that's a very important factor of that is the spike protein that, uh, that COVID actually has. The spike protein is highly adaptive and changes a lot. There's lots of different morphologies on the same virus, on the same inoculum that can occur. And that is what facilitates COVID being so easily transmitted between people and easily transmitted um, between different species. We do believe that COVID came from bats, most of the genome is consistent with that in terms of previous epidemics. Or, for example, if we look at uh, SARS, 80% uh, of the genome is similar to um, COVID. And for MERS, 50% of the genome is similar to COVID. But because of that modification of spike protein and an increased affinity for the ACE2 receptor, the, the COVID virus is very, very uh, easily spread. And to, if we look at, for example, SARS, uh, the COVID virus is actually 10 to 20 times faster spread than, than SARS was, just to give a perspective of that. And that is related to the affinity for the ACE2 receptor. There's a diagram um, that demonstrates different tissues that have high relative receptor affinity. And these are primarily associated with, for example, type two alveolar pneumocytes, which are in the lung. And we certainly expect that, but there are other places as well. For example, the esophagus, the, the um, intestine, and particularly the absorptive endotericites in the ileum, and also there's expression in the heart as well. There's even some suggestion of expression in the kidneys in terms of highly receptive ACE2 receptors. And when we look at that, as described here by Rotham et al., it indicates why we see so much 
multi-organ dysfunction in addition to the pulmonary dysfunction that we see when it comes to COVID-19. So for example, this is why touching your face is so important to avoid because the mucosa in the skin of your mouth is actually has high ACE2 receptor expression and allows for that spike protein uh, that we talked about to very readily uh, facilitate binding to the ACE2 receptor. Getting back to the overall structure of the critical care world and our role as general anesthesiologists um, in that particular in this particular surge staffing that we're specifically looking at, there's a tier staffing strategy for pandemics that's actually been uh, published by Society of Critical Care Medicine. In full disclosure, I am a member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine as well as the ASA. And it shows here tier strapping a model for pandemics. And it's very important to note here that this is a triangular structure in order to leverage all the tools and personnel in the hospital. Of course, we have fellowship trained critical care physicians and ideally those could be resources to any anesthesia teams that are uh, suspected to um, staff or provide critical care services suddenly, but anesthesiologists, every anesthesiologist in the United States of America has been required to do several months of critical care during your residency. And as such, we are all by trait automatically intensivists, automatically critical care physicians. So as anesthesiologists, a general anesthesiologist is at the top of this pyramid. And of course, we have the rest of our team members that we can coordinate with and we can direct. For example, we have respiratory therapists, other APPs, um, our nurse anesthetists and, and anesthesiologists, assistant colleagues. Um, we may have residents on the team. And so there's all sorts of ways to structure that. Or if we have, a, for example, a physician with a very non-critical care background, for example, that may suddenly be asked to help in a surge situation, we're properly trained to be able to provide that coverage, that expertise to care for those patients. And by automatically doing that, we can flex and cover a lot more patients and provide a lot more critical care when it's needed. So getting to the actual clinical course, um, this slide actually is adapted from Lancet 2020's March 11th, a paper that discussed the clinical course as described by intensivists and multidisciplinary team members in Wuhan, China. We'll also notice that I put Italy on there. The primary part of the slide is Wuhan, and I'll mention the parts that are in Italy, but I think the slide is very, very important to look at because it shows that most of our ICU admissions occur around one week into the clinical uh, course, if not more. So, for example, if we look at the patients that survived, we start seeing substantial amounts of dyspnea and around day seven and then ICU admission around day 12. So these patients have been really uh, working to breathe for quite some time before they are actually escalated to the ICU. And when we think about it, 80% of patients are asymptomatic but 20% of patients that have COVID will be admitted to a hospital. And the most common issue they have is hypoxia. This is normally treated with anywhere between two or one to six liters per minute of nasal cannula oxygen. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then we see furthermore that we have sepsis and ARDS tending to take place around day nine and day 10. And then of course we have our admission of, uh, administration of systemic corticosteroids because of the shock, not because of the lung disease. And then the patients that survive usually around day 22 is kind of what they saw. But in non-survivors, we see the sepsis and ARDS once again, but we start seeing acute cardiac injury, acute kidney injury, secondary infection, which is very, very important. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. But we see those other organ systems besides just the lung becoming important motivators or factors towards mortality in these patients. Furthermore, you'll see in the red located there, um, 
for non-survivors, we also see the, the Italian experience, and this is why I put it in red there, the Italian experience saw a lot of pulmonary embolism and an underlying hypercoagulable disorder manifested by an increased maximum amplitude on a thromboelastogram. And this was refractory to administering therapeutic Lovenox, administering aspirin. Based on the discussions with those physicians, there wasn't an attempt to administer um, clopidogrel or other G2B3A inhibitors. However, they were reluctant to do that because in autopsies, they appreciate a lot of pulmonary hemorrhage as well. So there seems to be a very difficult medium ground in order to achieve in the Italian experience. Furthermore, in the Italian experience, most patients ended up having um, uh, ICU admission a little bit closer to day five and day six, whereas in Wuhan, we see that occurring a lot later. So we can see different expressions and different morphologies of the virus depending on where the patients are, what region they're in. So we could see variability for patients that we have here in the United States, and indeed, that has already started to happen. When we look at types of ventilation, we need to address a couple of important things. Non-invasive ventilation is certainly important and is certainly a part of the armamentarium for care for these patients. However, when we look at the types of options we have, we have a high-flow nasal cannula. And it's important to remember that when we say high-flow nasal cannula, we're talking about techniques like vapotherm or humidified 20, 30 liter per minute types of high flow, not the high flow where they give you the cannula, but it's still running up four liters per minute from the wall. And those are really effectively positive pressure modalities because for every 10 liters of flow that you administer, you actually add one centimeter of water pressure. So for example, if a patient has 20 liters of flow in terms of their high flow nasal cannula, they're effectively having two centimeters of positive pressure with an inspired breath and two centimeters of water pressure for peak effectively four and two, if you roughly estimate that. So this is high flow nasal cannula is still something that has the potential to mobilize secretions, once again, um, in the mouth and for pharynx. CPAP and BiPAP have been greatly frowned upon at this point in terms of healthcare provider risk, because putting a CPAP or BiPAP mask on the face helps mobilize droplets and therefore is thought to be very, very concerning in terms of the potential to infect uh, nurses, physicians are taking care of these patients. If it's given, it needs to be given in a negative pressure room, but once again, there's other concerns with that because the general consensus has been external positive pressure has not really resulted in prolongation or prevention of ICU stays universally. There are sometimes it has been effective talking to different centers in terms of their experiences, but CPAP and BiPAP are actually very similar to the face tent that you'll see here. And this face tent, for example, is demonstrated on the University of Chicago website. It was studied in, in medical ICUs in the Chicago area, as well as one of our uh, own anesthesiologists and ACA members, Dr. Peep Papadakis, as well as Dr. Goab. And so a lot of our, we do have people that have experience with these, and you've seen these face tents on the news in Italy, um, particularly when you see uh, when you see them walking around or, or not in the ICU yet. One of the limitations of these face tents is that you really can't exceed around 10 to 12 centimeters of positive pressure. And the patients that have come to the ICU after being on face tents for several days have actually had uh, more de-recruitment, more uh, acute lung injury, and therefore the experience has been that these uh, individuals actually deteriorate more and have uh, more morbidity associated with their stay. Italy was using it because they didn't have any other options, but it's important for everyone to know that this is a viable way to provide positive pressure ventilation externally without having the drop of dispersal 
um, uh, to the healthcare providers. Final note on this, these, these uh, particular face tents are not generally available in the United States, mostly the manufacturing base for this is in Europe. So when we look at a ventilated waveform, for example, we can see here, this is a, um, a, a assist control sort of waveform where we have the nice classic upstroke, um, and of course you have our baseline peak, for example, let's say five centimeters of water pressure, and then we have our peak inspiratory pressure, which is that very, very tip of the waveform, and then our plateau directly after it. The plateau pressure is the way that we can actually determine compliance. You'll hear a lot of discussion with compliance when you talk to respiratory therapists or pulmonologists, and compliance, as has been mentioned already very efficaciously and thoroughly by, um, by our previous presenters, is a way to determine how much change in volume you get for change in pressure. If a patient's longer or less compliant, you have to get a lot more pressure, you get a lot less volume, and it becomes very, very clear that patient is sicker. So plateau pressure is a way to actually measure that, and we can actually do a breath hold or inspiratory pause if it's available. If you're using an ICU vent, it's very easy to measure that, but we also have ways to look at that in our anesthesia machines. So in the picture right here, you'll see an example of a waveform for patients on volume control. You'll see the peak there, you see a plateau. It's not as exaggerated as the one I just showed in the previous diagram, but it's clearly right there, and that's the way for us to determine our plateau pressures and see how much compliance we actually have. Furthermore, it's important to keep in mind that there are other instances that we tend to see in terms of this waveform. We can see poor compliance manifested by a very, very high plateau pressure, and the peak pressure will still be low because that doesn't necessarily mean their tube is kinked or that they actually have a mucus plug. But on the other hand, if you have high air resistance, you have that very, very high peak pressure, which can skew your average pressures. You need to make sure to look at the plateau pressure to assess this. And compliance in COVID patients tend, appears to be variable based on experiences in Wuhan, in Italy, in uh, New York, as well as in California from the various practices that we've been able to speak to as well. So we'll get to that in just a moment, but I think we should go back to the fundamentals of what was discussed in the ARDSNET trial. And the ARDSNET uh, clinical network had done a lot of work with this. It's generally uh, taught to most of our residents and discussed in most of our MOCA activities in general. But we have this nice peak table here as well as a calculation of what a volume we should use. I'll get rid of this kind of complex part in the lower left-hand side and say, listen, it's very easy to calculate ideal body weights by using a formula based on a metric system in terms of someone's, uh, if you have ideal body weight for males, you take their height minus 100, you very easily calculate, height in centimeters minus 100, you can very easily calculate their ideal body weight. True to form for females is minus 105. So sorry, but once again, that's a very easy way to calculate ideal body weight. So for example, if a patient is 177 centimeters and they're a male, their ideal body weight is 77 kilograms. If they're a female, their ideal body weight is 72 kilograms. But the ideal body weight is what should be used when we're calculating the actual six mLs per kilogram of tidal volume that we're generally trying to target in ARDS patients. And this is important because we're effectively talking about maybe a small person trapped in a, a large body, for example, if we have an obese patient. This ARSNET, uh, clinical, net, the ARSNET clinical network actually has provided um, summary data there in terms of how to wean PEEP if you want to have a lower PEEP or higher PEEP. And I want to show both of those because there's been incredible variability in terms of COVID patients. Some COVID patients have demonstrated very, very good compliance, very, very high compliance to where you don't need a lot of PEEP at all. In fact, there's very, very unusually low PEEP in these patients ventilate and oxygenate uh, relatively well, or maybe they don't oxygenate very, very well, but if you go up on PEEP, 
actually oxygenate worse because you're get, moving them from West Zone Two up into West Zone One uh, in our uh, in our theoretical uh, pulmonary anatomy. So keeping that in mind, there's a series of hypoxia therapies that we use commonly in the ICU. But the goal is always to reduce ventilator-induced lung injury. And reducing ventilator-induced lung injury really means that we're trying to avoid re-recruitment. Every time we have an alveolus that has collapsed and we re-expand that alveolus, then we are essentially inducing release of TNF-alpha, recruiting more alveolar pneumocytes, for example, um, type 2 pneumocytes, the very same ones that are upregulated and activated by ACE2 receptor agonism that we talked about a little bit earlier in the description of the pathogenesis and the, and the pathophysiology of the virus. And so really, we want to make sure that we choose a PEEP as soon as possible in order to facilitate that. That means we're intubating relatively early. We're not letting patients languish on the floor for extended periods of time. If they're getting more than requiring six liters of nasal cannula oxygen, it's really, and, and it's particularly they start showing signs of accessory muscle usage, there's no point prolonging it. These patients tend to deteriorate very quickly. We should intubate them earlier than later from the consensus looking at all the centers that have taken care of these patients. So choosing PEEP and aggressively making sure we manage PEEP appropriately is important. And we have to use our plateau pressures. We have to look at our compliance to determine how much PEEP is needed and make sure we're not over hyperventilating the patient. Recruitment maneuvers are very, very important. Simple ongoing um, pulmonary toileting is a commonly used word. We're making sure that we're making sure the patient's suctioned, that respiratory therapists, or in this case, perhaps our anesthesia care teams are regularly going and evaluating these patients. So recruitment maneuvers should not be underestimated. And sometimes that means mild bagging, suctioning every 12 hours, every shift. Something should be done to make sure that the lungs are healthy because positive pressure physiology is not normal negative pressure physiology where we're breathing and not intubated. So it's important to try to make sure we recruit alveoli and keep them recruited. Going on to the next phase is in, in terms of further worsening is really prone positioning. And we'll talk about prone a little bit more, but prone positioning should be on the list. And if we're gonna do prone positioning, it normally takes deep sedation. And anesthesia tear teams are ideally suited to manage prone positioning patients. In fact, we do it all the time in the operating room. We think about our spine cases, our um, posterior cervical fusions, or things of that nature. We regularly prone patients. We regularly screen for pressure injuries. We regularly work in a, as a team to facilitate that turning in an effective fashion. So as a team, as an anesthesiology team, I think we're perfectly suited to do that because we know how to make sure there's no pressure on the eyes, no pressure on other sensitive organs, as we all know from our baseline education. Neuromuscle blockade sometimes is required for treatment of prone patients, but um, um, if deep sedation is adequate, there's a lot of benefit to not necessarily giving neuromuscular blockade, primarily because long-term administration of neuromuscular blockade is associated with critical care polyneuropathy, or otherwise sometimes stated as critical care myopathy. And so these patients, though they survive their stay in the ICU, they can end up being weak for many, many years or having to go to a prolonged care facility. And this is normally diagnosed by an electromyogram as well. Nitric oxide has been discussed. It is commonly used in general for hypoxic patients with ARDS. But one of the difficult things with COVID is that normally COVID patients don't really have a lot of hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, so nitric oxide doesn't really seem to have an effect, particularly talking to our intensivist colleagues in Italy. 
And furthermore, ECMO is going to be the last step in terms of artificial lung management, which we'll talk about in a moment as well. It's important to keep in mind that prone positioning has been demonstrated to be effective um, and has been demonstrated with randomized control trials, meta-analyses, the most recent being Proceva, which is pictured here um, in the New England Journal of Medicine published in June of 2013. And this is where they actually had multiple ICUs in France. They recruited approximately 230 patients and they randomized to proning for 16 hours versus not proning. And there was a 50% reduction in mortality Prone positioning is something we absolutely should be doing for these patients when we can, and it's, and it's been borne out in terms of the experiences that we see um, both in our other international destinations as well as here in the United States. Just remember, it's very easy to pull things out. You, some hospitals have things like rotabeds, which are pictured here from my hospital, for example. One of the things about rotabeds is that there's not a lot of them, so this is a luxury that you might have in some patients, but it just takes good old-fashioned vigilance just like on the logo for anesthesiology with the lighthouse that we take and that we that we support as part of our creed. There are risks for injuries and that's why we're there to make sure those risks are mitigated. Another physiologic benefit of prone positioning is important to recall that when we have these patients there's a lot of inhibition of hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction particularly the more sedated they are. We see this in the operating room when we use our volatile anesthetics same thing happens if you have a heavily sedated patient in the intensive care unit. As shown by this diagram, which is featured from up to date online, we can see that, for example, the dorsal lung and supine position is where all the blood is. But, but anatomically, it's much easier for the ventral component of the chest to actually move because that's what we're designed to do. So because of that, we end up getting overdistension or West Zone 1 in the ventral component, and then we end up getting uh, collapsed alveoli with plenty of blood flow shunt or West Zone 3 in the posterior component. So if we take those patients and invert them, if we take those patients and make them prone, we get a lot more aeration or ventilation of lung that's actually maybe healthier, but also is balanced with the posterior um, or the dorsal aspect of the lung as well. And therefore, these patients can uh, potentially have better oxygenation from that. Now it's important to make sure we look at ventilator sharing and ventilator sharing is something that's been discussed already quite a bit so I won't belabor it very much. We do encourage utilization of ventilators in the community. We had a very um, a spirited discussion about this in the Committee on Critical Care Medicine and we really feel that this experimental therapy, just like the ASA joint position that was just published with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, ARC, um, CHEST, and ACN. So from our perspective, this is not something that we could really do, and I believe that Dr. Feldman has already answered those questions effectively. I will go ahead and move on beyond this slide. ECMO is something very important to discuss, and that's because um, it certainly is our go-to to have a, a functional artificial lung when someone has such profound ARDS that they're not able to oxygenate any further. Overseas centers are experiencing ECMO, and some of the groups that we did talk to did indicate that they are experienced ECMO centers, but they functionally couldn't facilitate ECMO because they had so many patients so quickly that they had to decide that they were gonna provide ECMO for one patient and, and basically lose the ability to care for two, three, or four patients if their nurses were stretched. And these are in hospitals where they may have had, they start off with 20 ICU beds and ended up with 100 ICU beds. So because of that ECMO, is, is has some viability issues. We don't know the actual outcomes with COVID in terms of ECMO. We cannot assume that putting someone on ECMO will actually make the COVID patient do better. 
for reasons we talked about, for example, in terms of cardiac injury, myocarditis, renal dysfunction, et cetera. But a couple of important points. If you, if, a new, if you have existing programs, that's fine if, from a local decision standpoint that someone wants to do ECMO. But if, if you're in a hospital where everyone's looking at planning, starting an ECMO service, this is not the time to do it. It takes a very experienced team, and it's very easy to start having a lot of issues with PPE on that. So this is something that should be left to the hospitals. There's not a consensus statement um, decrying it or supporting ECMO. But eCPR is one thing where there seems to be a little bit more of a consensus in that. If we have someone who's coding and we're going to look at putting them on ECMO emergently, crashing on ECMO, the amount of PPE consumed for that would really potentially be hazard in terms, cause a hazard in terms of providing PPE later on top of these staffing issues we talked about a little bit earlier. So in summary, some centers are doing ECMO. It is a viable option if it's in place, but if there's a large surge, it may, most centers have found it very difficult to realistically maintain that globally. And of course, you exclude ECMO availability for the patients that have ECMO for no, that would have a known diagnosis that would benefit from ECMO in the first place, such as bridge to transplant. Now, when we look at ICU service overall, it's important to keep in mind that we have systems, and so we just want to briefly go to the systems. Always work in systems. For example, cardiovascular, norepinephrine is definitely our first line in terms of a vasopressor, and really a lower MAP goal is fine unless there's some reason medically that you think someone needs a higher MAP goal. 60 to 65 is ideal. Beware preload because the more preload we give, yes, that can work in terms of cardiac function, but we want to make sure we're very, very concerned about volume, which I'll talk about in a minute. If PEEP gets high and there's a very compliant lung, sometimes we end up seeing right heart distress. And so make sure to take a, a bedside echo and look at the right heart, particularly if you're concerned about cardiac function. In terms of endocrine, steroids have a role in shock. They do not have a defined role in terms of the acute lung injury associated with COVID. And if you're looking at your endocrine system during rounds, don't forget about the thyroid system. Everyone thinks about glucose. Everyone thinks about um, adrenergic uh, functionality, but thyroid dysfunction can also contribute um, to um, critical care dysfunction, critical care disease as well. In terms of renal, conservative fluids are, appear to be the best from all the consensus that we actually have from across the world. So less volume is better. In fact, sometimes people are actually diuresing. Of course, this is not doable to patients in shock, but less fluid means more compliant lungs. More compliant lungs mean lower driving pressures, more ability hopefully to oxygenate. Crystalloids in the critical care community have been more accepted, um, and so colleagues are certainly reasonable, but in terms of randomized control trials, there's no mortality benefit to give colloids over crystalloids. And crystalloids are a lot cheaper, and in a surge situation, you might not have very much albumin to give. Clearly, we want to avoid the starches because there's a lot of black box warnings on those. Balanced crystalloids have definitely been much more well-received. For example, plasmalite has a normal pH or normal sol isolite. Those have pH of 7.4. Saline has a pH of 5.0 to 5.5. Lactated ringers, 6.5. So therefore, those are essentially acidic uh, compounds, and we really want to, we really try to encourage not using those. 15% of patients that have COVID will have acute kidney injury and will require uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. So in general, follow the systems. Make sure you're attentive to giving prophylaxis, nutrition, antibiotics, et cetera, and prepare yourself for this. I mean, you can, if, if your surgery volume has gone down now, it's very reasonable to call your ICU team and say, hey, can I shadow you for rounds one day just to get that muscle exercise again and plan what works in your institution. There is no one-size-fits-all way to scale up 
in this particular uh, fashion. And so the ASA has provided resources, particularly uh, the specific education resource we have for this is CSER ICU or um, COVID Activated Emergency Scaling of Anesthesiology Responsibilities or CSER ICU program. And this will include essentially snapshots of what to do, common do's and don'ts for each system if you find yourself suddenly rounding as an intensivist tomorrow or next week, et cetera. The, rest, the respiratory and pulmonary section are available on the, on the CSER ICU part of the education site today, and the rest of the systems will be up tomorrow, and this is available for all ASA members free of charge. We also developed this in conjunction with SCCM, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the Society of Critical Care Anesthesiologists and the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. This has been a very, very tremendous work and we really appreciate all those societies working together to build this product for all of our members. So in summary, don't become a victim, don't become a victim, don't become a victim. Be early, be aggressive, be early and aggressive in terms of your critical care. You know what to do, we do it all the time in the OR, you're ready for this. And leverage the team and ask for help. If you need a consultant or something, you get in over your head, if there's any sort of guardrails that you seem like you've gotten past, ask for help. If you have anesthesiologist intensivists in your department, call them and have that as part of your plan. It's okay to call the intensivist there as well. If you're starting renal replacement therapy, getting CT scans of the head or things like that, it's very reasonable to go ahead and call an intensivist so that way you have that resource so you don't have to have any needs not met. And so that being said, thank you very much. And I'm happy uh, to return the presentation back to um, our moderator. Thank you, Dr. Williams, for a fantastic presentation. So uh, a couple of questions. Who are the stakeholders that need to engage when redeploying to the critical care unit? Great question. The stakeholders are really kind of everyone that could actually be there. Your nurses are going to be absolutely key. You need to talk to your chief of critical care for the hospital or whoever actually runs the ICUs there, no matter what department they're in, and make a plan together. And also, don't be, don't be afraid to engage your consulting services with that whole team, your administration, infectious disease doctors, all those people need to be aware of a plan and help you build a plan that works for your institution. You can't do this alone. It's just like enhanced recovery after anesthesia and surgery. It takes a team. Make sure to engage administration, nursing, your consultants that are in the hospital. Thank you. And another question. What is the mortality rate for patients that are placed on, on ventilators who have COVID-19? So this, this is a highly variable question. Um, if we... And I'll have to, I, I, I don't have that specific number at the top of my head, but we're looking at 20% of patients that are hospitalized. And out of those 20%, we'd only have about a fourth of those that end up requiring critical care management. And that critical care management is primarily related to respiratory failure. So you're looking about that fraction that actually has um, acute lung injury and ARDS. So when we look at our 1% mortality, we're talking about 1% of that, the 1% of that or 5%, which correlates with around a 25 to 33% mortality with ARDS. And that is what we see in the background literature. Um, ARDS's previous mortality before proning was, has been suggested to be between 40 and 60%. Um, so I hope those mathematics, and I apologize for doing it in my head while I was talking, but I hope those mathematics help in terms of the rough mortality. You're gonna have to be very concerned about making sure we're aggressive to prevent mortality in those patients. Thank you. Now we're gonna go to some other Q&A questions. And one is from Luke Janik from Chicago. He says, can you comment 
on the recent move to have all people in the hospital wear a standard mask at all times to decrease transmission. Partners Healthcare led the way. Other healthcare organizations have done such. American College of Emergency Physicians recommends face masks all the time. Where does the ASDA stand on this? And maybe that's best for Dr. Peterson. Uh, thank you, Joe. We do not have a stance on that yet. We've been mostly following um, CDC criteria with the one um, sort of variation in that all aerosolized producing procedures, um, we are recommending the higher uh, protection with the N95 masks, face shields, knowing that there's shortages of those and a lot of people are having to reuse those. Um, there is good guidance on the APSF website on reusing uh, the N95s. You know, we are still dealing with shortages of PPE. Um, we have some promises from 3M and Honeywell that they're making millions and millions of masks. Um, we're not there yet. Thank you. Uh, so a follow-up question to uh, N95s. How do you sterilize the, the N95 for reuse? And maybe Dr. Peterson again. So I would refer you to the APSF website. There's various methods. Uh, I know today that um, we got some guidance from the inventor of the N95 mask who was mostly recommending the baking process. Um, you know, you don't want it hung near metal or whatever, but um, it gives specifics on how many degrees centigrade for 30 minutes. Um, there is steam sterilization that can also um, that can also be used as well. Um, but, you know, some people are using UV. Um, he puts that in a lower category, but I know some institutions, University of Nebraska has a protocol for UV sterilization also. Um, all that can be found on the website. Thank you. So our next question is, if my hospital does not allocate any N95 masks to anesthesiologists, and residents for patients that are not suspected or confirmed to be COVID-19. Do we have the right to demand for those masks to be available for all cases since there exists a number of asymptomatic COVID patients? So once again, that's where our guidance moved towards recommending it for all patients because of what we're seeing in communities, we're behind in testing. Um, we don't know um, who's positive and who isn't. We know that people can be asymptomatic, especially children can be asymptomatic the virus shatters. And so because of that, and because we're inches from the airway doing these aerosolized uh, generating procedures, that's why ASA came out and said, um, we really believe they need the higher protection. And that is consistent, at least the last part with CDC guidance that with you know, suspected COVID, well, you know, at a certain point, everybody may be suspect if you have wide community spread. Um, I've had some emails today from colleagues, you know, asking about it. I've just reiterated here, our guidance is, please go back to your administration and your teams and explain to them, we're not talking about everybody in the operating room having it in 95, and you can, you know, parse it out by the individuals doing the intubations and extubations. You can develop intubation teams. Um, there's various ways that you can conserve the N95. Another question I've been asked is, well, what about other people that see us with that and then they're wearing a regular mask? Well, if you read the CDC guidance, you know, in all of our outpatient clinics, ERs, whatever, 
those staff are wearing regular masks and face shields unless they're doing a highly aerosolizing procedure like intubations. And so it really depends on the kind of contact you're having with the patient, um, what kind of PPE you would be wearing. What's the best way to use a HEPA filter during a general anesthetic? Uh, so the term HEPA filter uh, really just refers to a high efficiency particulate. Basically, it's a generic term for filters that filter very effectively. Uh, but there's a variety of performance that uh, falls under that rubric. So what you really want to do is understand the viral filtration efficiency of the filters that you put on the machine. And there's very specific guidance now on the APSF website describing um, what you can use, um, how you should use it, et cetera. There's two places that you need to protect. One is the um, gas, exhaled gas entering the machine. And that's pretty easy to protect with a high-quality mechanical filter at the end of the expiratory limb. And I say mechanical filter because I'm distinguishing it from an electrostatic filter that generally don't perform as well. The other uh, nice thing about the filter at the end of the expiratory limb is that it doesn't impose any dead space on the airway. So you have a lot of flexibility on the devices you can put there. Having an HME filter at the airway is also useful, both for adding to the protection of the anesthesia machine, as well as protecting the sampled gas that goes to your um, gas analyzer. In some machines, that sample gas is designed to re-enter the circuit and so you want to protect it from viral spread as well. So um, there are more details on this, and I'll, I'll just refer you to the APSF website because we tried to put lots of, of good detail on this topic there. Thank you, Dr. Feldman. The next one I think is for Dr. Williams. How do you triage a COVID patient who should or should not get in, be placed on the ventilator? That's a fantastic question and a very important one. Essentially, when it comes to a COVID patient triage, like we said, uh, most of them will actually do fine with simply nasal cannula oxygen and supportive care on the hospital floor. But if we have a patient, if you have a COVID patient who is requiring six liters of oxygen via nasal cannula or more, really remember that nasal cannula oxygen caps out at 35% for a normal patient with normal breathing. So you're really saying that they need more oxygen than 35 to 36%. And automatically, those patients that are requiring that um, we would normally escalate them in, without COVID to a Vinny mask or a face mask, but in this case, that's actually not been shown to be helpful because the, the lung injury process is already taking place. So the key thing is if you have increasing work of breathing, if you have um, respiratory distress, and they're already getting on the higher side of nasal oxygen, as described, they need to be intubated. And uh, we need to put a mechanical ventilation if at all possible. That's effectively, it's actually a more simple triage system than we have in many of our critical care scenarios that we address every day. Thank you, Dr. Williams. So Dr. Peterson, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, thank you, Joe. And I, I want to thank really all of our panelists and really all the people behind the scenes to create all the educational materials, trying to get it up on websites as quickly as possible all the groups that we're working with to get uh, joint statements together. I'm basically this week, every day, I've been talking with somebody from the White House team, um, really trying to get more information and, and trying to get it out to you all. Now, I have a surprise for you tonight. I didn't know if it could happen, but our own Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, has a few moments that he can share his thoughts with you. 
Thank you, Jerome, so much for being with us here tonight. Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson. I just really appreciate the opportunity to address each and every one of you. And I want to start off by just saying thank you to the ASA leadership. Thank you to all of you all as providers out there for all that you've done to help us through what is truly a difficult and an unprecedented situation. Now, we know that in recent history, uh, never has it been more important for Americans to reach across the lines that divide us. Geography, race, party, philosophy. Uh, it's through smart actions and strong partnerships at the federal, state, and local levels that we're going to get through this. And it's through division, it's through a lack of coordination that we're going to struggle to get to the other side. Although I'm here to provide an update on COVID-19 as a member of the President's Coronavirus Task Force, Many of you know that I am a still practicing anesthesiologist at Walter Reed Medical Center, and that I actually took care of suspect Ebola patients uh, back during the time of Ebola. I also will be the first to acknowledge as a former state health commissioner that I know from firsthand experience, this crisis won't be solved from Washington, D.C. or from the CDC in Atlanta. It's going to be solved at the community level because that's where the capacity is, that's where the resources are. I know that folks expect the federal government to provide, and we are doing everything we can to provide, but I think it's important to point out that the national stockpile purchases one-tenth of one percent of all of the supplies in the entire country. The other 99.9 percent .9 are in the commercial and private markets, and so a lot of the capacity that folks are looking for is already out there. It's sitting on shelves in surgery centers. It's sitting in hospitals. It's just misaligned. And that's something that I really want you all to think about, how you can help us fix that misalignment. The resource capacity and the stories we're hearing from our partners and our colleagues in New York City are just horrifying, not something that we'd ever want for any of our friends, our family members, or ourselves. But just a few hours away in Western New York, there are hospitals that are laying off nurses and doctors, furloughing them because of decreased capacity. So there is a misalignment. There is not a lack of resources. We just need to make sure they're getting to the right place. I do want to point out that uh, I hope there are not places in the country that are still doing elective surgeries because it's important to understand there's supply and there's demand. And we are focused in every way, shape, and fashion to make sure supplies are getting where they need to get to. Nine million N95 masks have gone out of, out of the national strategic stockpile. We've worked with 3M and Honeywell to increase production of masks to the point where they're going to be putting out 100 million N95 masks a month. We've sent 4,000 ventilators to, uh, to New York City, and we've worked closely with the ASA to convert uh, and make anesthesia ventilators available. But the fact is, we're not going to supply our way out of this problem. The way to solve this problem isn't to wait till everyone gets sick and then to have a ventilator for them and PPE for them. The way we get out of this, this crisis is to lower demand. COVID-19 is now spread all over the globe. In the U.S., tens of thousands of cases have been reported in all 50 states in D.C., Puerto Rico, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. We passed the 80,000 mark for cases today, and unfortunately, the grim, uh, grim threshold of 1,000 deaths. And we expect more cases in the week, weeks ahead and death in the weeks ahead. Uh, many of you all heard me on the Today Show on Monday morning saying that this week was going to be bad. I wanted folks to be prepared for that. Next week is going to be bad also, 
just in different places than, than where it's been bad this week. That's why it's so critical that we take a few simple steps to slow the spread of the virus, to flatten the curve, as you've heard many of us say. And I ask you to go to coronavirus.gov, look at those plans, put them in, into action in your homes, in your communities, in your hospitals immediately. This is a proactive and protective plan for the nation, and I absolutely need you to share it with your members and your networks and use your voices, your policies, and your programs to drive its adoption. There are still far too many cases of people doing elective surgeries, of people playing basketball, of people going to the beaches, of people checking out cherry blossoms, and every single one of those situations is a potential opportunity for coronavirus to be spread into our communities and a potential opportunity for someone to need a ventilator or to need care from one of you all and to put you at risk. You are an extremely important piece to this puzzle, both as a provider, but also as a community voice who can help people understand the importance of everyone paying attention to these mitigation efforts. By social distancing, along with good hand and cough hygiene, we know we can dramatically reduce the spread of this disease. We've seen it in China. We've seen it in South Korea. We've seen it now in New York where their cases have leveled off. So we know this works. We just have to commit to it and do it. And so the good news, the good news is that when we do these things, we see that the course of this disease runs about six to eight weeks from the time you lean into social mitigation. That's about how long it took China from the time they really got serious about social distancing and mitigation. That's about how long it took South Korea. Again, Italy, we're starting to see it hit its peak and it's starting, hopefully, to come back down. And even in New York City, they leveled off. And in New York, uh, folks need to remember, they didn't really go to aggressive social distancing and mitigation until about a week ago. What we're seeing is that the numbers that you see today reflect what happened one to two weeks ago. And it's why we need to get serious about this now, even if you don't live in a place where you see increased cases at the, at the moment. I want to finish with a, a point about testing. Uh, testing is ramped up across the country significantly. Uh, we have confirmed over 500,000 tests that have been done in our country, which is more than have been done in all of South Korea. Uh, you may have heard the president say this, we've done more tests in the United States in the last eight days than South Korea did in eight weeks, and they're put up as the standard for mass testing. Now, I recognize that South Korea is a smaller country than ours. Proportionally, South Korea in their initial surge tested about one in 200 people, and that's what they called mass testing or surveillance. That would be for us about one and a half to two million tests in this country. And uh, we're pushing a million tests right now based on estimates. Not all tests are reported, but about 10% of tests are coming back positive, which means if you take the number of positives and multiply them by 10, that's the number of tests that you can expect to be done, uh, or, or number of cases that you, you expect and tests to be done. We now have 80,000 positives in the U.S., which means we've probably done about 800,000 tests in this country. And by this time next week, we expect to be close to 2 million. That will allow us to be a lot more strategic in our recommendations. We don't need to treat Boise, Idaho the way we treat New York City. It will also allow us to give more information to the people who need it the most. Most people don't need to be tested. Most respiratory symptoms are due to other causes. Uh, again, 90% of people who are tested are testing negative, even if they have symptoms. So right now, we recommend testing for hospitalized patients and for symptomatic healthcare workers, followed by people who have symptoms and are at high risk of more severe outcomes. That includes individuals who live in long-term care facilities, 
those over 65 or with chronic conditions or compromised immune systems and first responders. Uh, again, you can get all this information and more at coronavirus.gov. As anesthesiologists, I also wanna hit one more point. You may have heard me last week encourage the nation to go out and give blood. Social distancing does not have to mean social disengagement. You can make an appointment at your blood center to space out people who come in and you can still give blood. As someone who did trauma anesthesia for 10 years, I know how critical it is to have that blood when you need it. So it's a great way to encourage people in your communities to stay connected and to stay involved. I, I wanna thank you all again for the opportunity to address you and for your support of this whole of America response. Please know your efforts to communicate our work and the steps that can be taken to slow the spread of COVID-19 are going to be critical. Please always remember supply and demand. We will not supply our way out of this problem. And if that's the only part of this we lean into, then we're always gonna be behind the curve. By working together and supporting each other and our neighbors, we will get through this. And I'm confident that we can flatten our curves in all states across the country and get through this with as few deaths as possible. So thank you again for the opportunity. We need you to take an inventory of where all the ventilators are in your community. We know that from talking to folks in New York, a lot of the uh, leaders still don't realize that you can use anesthesia ventilators. A lot of them don't know that there are anesthesia ventilators in surgery centers sitting unused. A lot of them don't know that there's PPE and ventilators one to two miles away from where they're struggling to actually meet the needs that they have. And so we need everyone in communities across America to take stock of which surgery centers are closed, which dentist offices are, are closed, where ventilators might be, where extra staff might be, and give this information to your governors and state departments so that if, unfortunately, you all go the way of New York, and some places will go in that direction. Some are going to have curves like New York. Other ones are going to have curves that are going to be better. But you want to be prepared, and part of being prepared is knowing where your resources are and being able to deploy them quickly. So I look forward to continuing to work with the American Society of Anesthesiologists, with the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, with Quad A, with our anesthesia techs, and with everyone out there who can show what we can bring to the table at this time of crisis. Dr. Jerome Adams, um, thank you so much for spending the time with us in this on a very incredible time that we're dealing with and all your leadership that you have given to our nation. Thanks for joining us. We'll continue to keep you updated here on Central Line. And for more information, you can find video of the original town hall at asahq.org slash COVID-19 info, where additional COVID-19 resources can also be found. Stay safe and join us again soon. Thank you.